Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, the first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. This episode is brought to you by AFCO. Family owned and operated, AFCO fishing apparel and tackle are designed to handle the harshest elements and help you weather any day on the water. From cold tournament mornings to the humid summers in Florida, our products are built to handle the extreme. We are proud to hear customer stories about the 20-plus year life cycle of the AFCO products. Visit AFCO.com. That's A-F-T-C-O dot com for on-the-water performance gear. What's up, guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. I'm your host, Brian Sin. Thanks for listening to today, guys. Uh, man, Alabama is a little bit rainy and uh cooled off and man i'll be honest with you i'm glad i'm glad to see it i'm ready for this cooler weather and we sure needed the rain uh although it looks like most of most of it is going south of my house so my grass i may not even have to mow it again this year because it don't ever rain in my house but hey i am glad for the cooler weather i know where fishermen are man i hope you guys have been able to get out and enjoy it over the last few days or few weeks whether you're fishing or we're just outside enjoying Alabama. So, hey, let's get to our first segment today. And we've been doing a series with Norman with Southeastern Pond Management on pond restoration. Uh, We've done step one. We've talked about step two. And now today is step three of our series on pond restoration. What's going on, Norman? Hey, Brian. How are you, buddy? Doing well. I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. You you on the road today? I am. I'm actually headed down to our Auburn office as we speak. Man, hey, that War Eagle, that's a good place to be going, I tell you. That's right. <laughs> I, I had to drop a, another one of my kids off a few weeks ago at Alabama. I, I obviously failed as a parent. I can't, can't get any it, of my kids to did. follow daddy's footsteps. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> I, got, I got Auburn friends who... Uh, uh, say the same thing i got some alabama friends who have their kids in auburn so it's funny how that works out sometimes it does man and you know with gabe uh the one that just he's a freshman just started you know he's grown up his whole life being an auburn fan i'm going to auburn one day i'm going to auburn love auburn and then all of a sudden all his friends decide they're going to alabama and he's like okay i'm going to alabama <laughs> with all my buddies <laughs> But I'm still going to root for right. Auburn, Daddy. I'm like, okay, that's I'm sure right. you will. Yeah, we'll see, we'll sure see how long you will. Right. <laughs> we know how that goes. Yeah. That ain't going to yeah. last. Well, Norman, we've had two great uh, conversations over the last two months on our pond restoration series. And uh, we've, we've talked about new ponds, uh, building new ponds. We've talked about forage uh, fertilizing lime and all that stuff. And kind of where we're getting to today as we're getting toward the end of this series is, you know, pond maintenance. Now we've got a pond, we've got it stocked, we've got it fertilized, but there's still things that need to be done and maintenance type things that need to be done. Right. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and, and the thing of it is the order of, when things are done and how they're done is it's so variable i mean it, it, there's so many different variations and uh different options but a lot of a lot of times to be honest with you we're talking about things like dam 
maintenance or restoration or spillway manage maintenance or or shoreline management uh, maintenance maintaining the depth and the shoreline area you know sometimes the best time to do that is maybe even before we ever get to the stocking stage you know there are ways to do it after the lake's already been stocked we we engage in those sort of activities in, in existing lakes that without even drawing the water down in some cases. But uh, in other cases, it's easiest and most efficient to do it, you know, maybe before we get to the stocking phase, before we let it completely fill up. But there's always something to do when it comes to maintaining uh, the dam, the spillways, the, the shoreline, et cetera. Well, let's. Kind of break some of that down a little bit, if you don't mind, Norman. So let's let's just take, let's say before stocking, what are some of the steps you can take before you stock to make that process easier or more manageable? Yeah. So so what we look at is is kind of best management practices for construction. A lot of these things center around erosion control. Uh, they center around vegetation control. It, it's centered on or focused on keeping nuisance pests like muskrats and beavers and those sorts of critters away from the water, snakes, and keeping uh, the shoreline clean. So really, it's just it's a lot of common sense stuff. The dam and the shoreline of a pond ideally will be kept clean and free of woody vegetation. In other words, you know, we want there to be rooted vegetative growth, and that's what anchors the dirt and keeps the erosion away. But we don't want it. We don't want trees and, and heavy woody shrubs to grow up because those are the kinds of plants that that put down root systems that actually tunnel into the into the ground and can compromise, you know, long term. So, and even beyond that, the dam, for example. Uh, we say, look, let's let's keep it free of, of, of woody vegetation. Well, in order to do that, we've got to be able to maintain it. We've got to be able to cut it periodically, at least once or twice a year. In order to do that efficiently, we've got to maintain a, a reasonable slope uh, on, say, the backside of the dam. You know, if you've got a two-to-one slope, uh, that's pretty darn steep. You know, you're going to have to get special equipment out there to mm. to, to, to to cut it, you know, so we, whereas if you have a four or five to one slope, nice gradual tapered off slope at the backside, you can get back there with a tractor easily and mow it and cut it. And, and uh, kind of the same way with the front side, moving on to something a little different, minimum depth is, it can be really important for vegetation control. And, and that's something that's pretty simple to establish during the construction phase, for example, that can be quite a challenge once there's already water in the lake. You know, if we can get down to three foot, three feet of water depth very rapidly on the front side, you know, on the water side, we can get a much steeper slope. Maybe we want a two, two to one or, or, or a three to one at, at, at most on the, on the water side. And we can take it down to three feet quickly and we can eliminate a lot of these shallow areas that attract vegetation that leads to uh, having to spend a lot of time and money battling weeds for years to come. 
Oh Those yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you get that, you're right. If you if if you if you have it steep off the bank early on, then you know your your weed is weed problem is is definitely going to be minimized at that. And where you get into where you get into trouble, it sounds like and have to spend money on herbicides or other other means of of getting rid of vegetation. It's when it's shallow, a lot of sunlight gets to the bottom, therefore a lot of growth happens, and then it's a constant battle. It's not a, a one-time get rid of it and it's gone thing. It's a ongoing right. maintenance issue. When you have water depth of less than twenty-four inches, certainly less than you know, less than twenty-four, eighteen, twenty-four inches. I mean, you you can work and work and work, but the bottom line is you're gonna be dealing with aquatic vegetation. And, and, you know, you, you, there's hardly any way around it. Yeah. And, hey, look, I like a little aquatic vegetation. I like to throw that chatterbait, a uh, little spinnerbait or something through there every now and then. But it's... That, that's right. That's you, right. Yeah, right. But that's more specific to, to different parts of the lake. You really probably don't want that to be battling that on your, maybe on the pond dam as much as other parts of the lake. It, that, yeah. And, and, and having some shallow water is is sometimes desirable. Some folks like a little bit of aquatic vegetation, like you said, in the upper end, or if you can keep it confined or have a shallow flat uh, where you know you're going to have some vegetation, but it's kind of restricted uh, or confined to an area. You know, we do that a lot. Yeah, but you know, where you get into problems is where you have a, a gradual, slow, uh, gradual slope into the water all the way around the lake. And so really... That's where you see these lakes that have three or four, five foot, eight foot, ten foot bands of vegetation all the way around the lake, and it's just difficult to control. Yes, you know, I was I was fishing Norman the other day. Uh, you were gracious gracious enough to to let me go out and fish it at one of y'all's lakes, and you know, one of the things I was thinking about because uh, I knew we were going to be doing this episode coming up is, you know, there's there's a lot of riprap. Uh, big rip rat rock on the pond dam, but there's also a lot of vegetation on the dam. Is is the rip rat placed in early development while the while the other grasses, native grasses, or whatever it may be, is it to help with erosion while that other take hold, or is it necessary all the time? Because you see, you see, yeah. rip on pond dams all the time, you know, a lot. Anyway, you do, and and it's a it's a little bit of both. The the thing that riprap is such, does such a good job job protecting against and big surge rock, you know, bowling ball or you know size or bigger rock, sometimes much bigger, is it protects and and you see it a lot on the dam, which is usually a long straight, you know, that's all open water out in front of it and. It, and it helps protect against uh, weed, uh, wave action because uh, no matter no matter what you do as far as vegetation, when you get that constant pounding from the wind, it creates a little bit of a wave action. It'll cut in and undermine the the, the soil and vegetation, anything else on the on the bank. So surge rock or riprap is great at repelling that sort of wave and wind action you see it a lot on on big water on the right. reservoirs on the rivers uh obviously added to the wind you have uh 
you know, the wakes and waves associated, generated by boats. And, you know, I was, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine the other day in, uh, from Texas, and he was talking about how they had outlawed these, uh, these, uh, these wake boats uh, on this lake that he lives on. And he's a big fisherman, and he, of course, he, he'd like to outlaw all boats other than fishing boats. But, right. uh, but, you know, these things create a lot of wave action. And, and that's what that's that's the concern more so than protecting bass anglers they're worried about eroding the banks so surge rock is is really you know good at, at doing that seawalls and things that'll protect the, the bank but it also does what you're talking about uh, as well it, it helps to give a foothold early on before the vegetation's had time to get established. It's remarkable what grassy vegetation does in, in the way of erosion control. I mean, you don't, you know, you look at these dams that, these massive dams that have, uh, you know, sometimes are 10 or 20 foot tall coming out of the water and they don't have the first erosion ditch on them because they're so well vegetated. And, uh, you know, you see other dams where they didn't do a good job getting vegetation established. And you just got these deep, you know, two, three foot ruts cut in them just from that water running down. You know, that stuff's uh, destructive if you let it let it go without without controlling it. Um, yeah, no doubt. All right, guys, let's take a few moments and hear from some of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by United Bank. United Bank knows what an important role agriculture plays in our local economy. At United Bank, they are here to support local farmers with financial products and services designed specifically for agribusiness, including real loans for farmland, equipment loans, working line of credit, and more. Truth is, they deeply value the contribution agriculture plays to our community, and they help our local farmers build successful businesses. They want to see you succeed. Learn more at unitedbank.com or stop by any United Bank branch. United Bank, all loans subject to credit approval, equal housing opportunity lender, member FDIC. Also brought to you by Fish Bites. For more than 20 years, anglers everywhere have come to know one thing, that nothing says no to Fish Bites. We are the Fish Bites Nation, and this is your invitation. So grab some Fish Bites and get busy casting, because you can't join the nation without doing the catching. Ask for Fish Bites or Fish Club Lures, or visit fishbites.com. Also brought to you by l and Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats, pontoon boats, to bigger bay boats, offshore boats, and hybrids. l and Marine LLC prides itself on its customer service and knows how important it is to be taken care of and to have someone you can trust. They are locally owned and regularly support the community. L&M Marine provides superior customer service and has an entire team that consists of professional sales members, financial experts, service technicians, and a knowledgeable parts and accessory staff to support you. Go visit their friendly, reliable, and experienced staff now locally owned six miles north of I-10 on 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama, or call 251-937-1380. You know, so let's go to the other end of it, and let's say we've got a, a pond, you know, we maybe we didn't do some of those things we needed to do on the front end, but now we've got a pond, we're restoring it, we're trying to improve it. 
Uh, but, it, you know, we've already stocked. We've already got the fish in it. You know, it's an established from that point. What are some things that we can do at that point to make sure that it's maintained properly? Yeah, you know, there's there's some things that can be done with shoreline vegetation, with herbicide, with mechanical, you know, mowing that are just as effective when the lake's completely full as when it's, you know, as they are before it's full. And so, you know, generally speaking, best management practice is to keep the shoreline reasonably maintained. And I don't mean you got to go out there like you do your front yard and and cut the grass every single week, but it's helpful a couple times a year to knock that stuff down and keep it from becoming a problem, you know, and particularly keep the, the woody stuff, the thick, heavy stuff from growing up in the first place. And then, uh, and then there's some more, uh, there are other methods, uh, even lakes that are older that do have some, some shallow shorelines. We could do what we call deepening the edges. There's lots of equipment out there that's capable of reaching out into the water 10, 20, 30 feet, raking some of the silt and sediment that's causing, you know, that's just in those shallow areas, raking it up onto the bank, letting it dry out, spreading it, hauling it off. And, uh, you know, we do quite a bit of that. And we get into projects where maybe we drop the water level a foot or two to expose a little bit of the of the shoreline. And then with some equipment that's got some reach to it, get out there and, and you know, 20, 30 feet and, and pull it and get it down to, 30 inches, 36 inches, it can make a, a whole bunch of difference. You know, like I was saying earlier, the difference between 18 and 20 inches of water depth and 36 inches is night and day. Right. You give me 36 inches, I can pretty much control vegetation uh, without using herbicides. You start dealing with 16, 18, 20 inch water depth, it becomes very challenging to block sunlight from the bottom and keep vegetation from growing up. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and I would think that, you know, in older lakes, I mean, even if you, even if you have the riprap, even if you have the vegetation on the pond dam, you're not going to have that all the way around the lake. So I would think it would be reasonable to think that over a certain time period of years and years, on the parts of the lake that don't have the riprap and don't have maybe some of the protection that the dam has, you're going to have the wave action. You're going to have the rain and, uh, and the wind. And at some point erosion just is going to happen. And those places that may have at one time been 36 inches deep pretty quickly off the bank are now back to that 12. No question about it. I mean, every, every lake, uh, is on its way to that. Uh, it may be years away from it, but the deepest and the and the most the more most contour and uh, the the most ideal depth profile in terms of the shoreline areas that you're going to have on a lake the day the day it fills up. You know, from that day forward, it's it's all headed toward silting in, getting shallower and shallower, and and it's just a maintenance item. Now, if, if you do a good job with your initial construction. If you do a good job with erosion control in a general sense and, and get vegetation established all the way around the lake, 
you can mitigate those damages to a large extent, but, but eventually all lakes silt in and get shallower with time. And that's where you come in and, and do these corrective measures. And, and it's just part of, part of your maintenance program for your lake. We do a lot of, uh, you know, we've got nice equipment. Uh, these skid steers, rubber track skid steer loaders with big cutter heads, and we do some some pretty extensive work in and around the margins of ponds. The other thing that it does is not only does it maintain your shoreline and, and the integrity of the shoreline and help control erosion and 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 so forth and, and keep pests and you know, muskrats and and other nuisance animals out, but it also gives you a a great way to walk around the pond. I, I love it. I love it. I love walking the pond. You know, I mean, no I love dropping a boat in too. But, but how nice is it to have a nice, you know, ten or twenty foot minimum swath cut all the way around your lake, where you can walk entirely around the lake and and a pair of flip flops or or you know a pair of tennis shoes and and fish. You know, and and uh, you know it just opens up so much more opportunity to enjoy the enjoy the, the pond when when you when you keep that that shoreline area maintained and and uh, absolutely and, you know, we do we do quite a bit of that stuff actually. yeah especially yeah. with kids and things like that i mean you know it's, it's sometimes it's a little i i can tell you because i've got a bunch of them and you do too but uh sometimes in the little fellas in the boat is uh more work than it is fun <laughs> And uh, right. where if you had them way where they could walk around the edge of the lake, man, it's uh, they it's a little bit more enjoyable. So, yeah, absolutely. absolutely, I would definitely want that around my pond. Have a like you said, a yeah. twenty foot buffer to where you can walk around it. You can it's it's cut, it's maintained. You don't have to worry about stepping on a snake or your kids or cast. You don't have stuff yeah. hanging you up when you're trying to throw. It just makes it enjoyable, right? Yep. No, no question. We, like I said, we've got nice equipment, those rubber track skid steers that can get right up literally to the water and even in the water in some cases and just and clip that stuff down and just make it, just manicure it, you know, and it, it also looks really nice. So, yeah. Um, there's value in, in, in doing that for sure. There ain't no doubt. No doubt. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned a while ago, you mentioned nuisance animals and I know that you know, when we talk about nuisance animals, we're talking about muskrats, we're talking about beaver, nutra rats, otters, you know. Like, Absolutely. And, yep. and and I know that all those can be a problem, some of them in different ways than others, right? I mean, you know, otters, if you got a bass lake or a fishing lake and you see an otter, you better get rid of him in a hurry or you might not have any fish left. That's exactly right. Yeah, they're 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 a pro- they can be a real problem. So all all those kind of pests and and you're right, the, the different ones create different problems. I mean, muskrats are probably the most uh, common pest that we try to deal with, and they actually do tunnel and burrow into the dam, and you know create holes and channels and underground that can collapse and and, and over time, but really can compromise the dam parts of the dam and but all those critters whether it's you know beavers that are in and around the edges of the pond doing their business uh, muskrats even otters they those critters are all much more easily controlled if you keep the 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 shoreline the dam the top of the dam the back of the dam the front 
the shoreline areas uh, maintained. I mean, uh, and not to mention, you know, snakes, for example. I mean, look, snakes are a part of nature and they like, you know, certain types of snakes want to be around water and, and, and I understand all that, but you can control the abundance of them and where they are. Uh, they want to be in areas where they can hide and where it's yep. thick and where they can get away from predators and where they can ambush prey. So, you know, again, best management practices. You can't eliminate all that stuff. You can't eliminate all those animals, but you can certainly uh, mitigate uh, the, the damage they do and the abundance of them simply by uh, keeping the, the, the shoreline area maintained and keeping the dam and the vegetation under control so that it's just not a, a free-for-all. Yeah, know? right. Yeah, it just cut their habitat down a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. that's yeah. right. Well, I know over the years you have, uh, I know that you've seen a lot of failed pond dam in your career, I'm sure, uh, mm. that, you know, you, you may have lost your whole pond. You may, I'm sure mm-hmm. you've seen situations where, and a little bit larger lakes that not only did you damage your property, but you damaged your neighbors when the pond dam broke, maybe. Mm-hmm. Those type situations. When you've seen dam failures, is there a couple of things that you say contributed mm-hmm. uh, to the failure, and, and what would those be? Yeah, the, the, the biggest thing you run into is, Lakes, when they're older, uh, and the spillways, you know, most lakes are designed, certainly lakes that are designed properly, have a a, a spillway uh, mechanism, whether it's a mechanical, like a, a, a pipe inside the lake, it's designed to take excess water or even a over-the-dam type spillway. We might call it a, an earthen spillway. But most of these structures... All these lakes, when they're constructed, have these structures. And a lot of times, over time, just like the shoreline or the dam uh, deteriorates, these these uh, spillway structures deteriorate. And so probably the number one thing that we see that leads to dam failure is, is letting the water come up over the top of the dam, which is never designed to do. You know, if, if a spillway gets clogged, if an earthen spillway gets blocked up, then you end up having water that piles up higher than it's supposed to. And if it ever goes over the top of the dam, you get a, a heavy, heavy rain. The spillway is just not capable of taking the water as quickly as, uh, as it needs to. And water comes over the top of the dam. It can very quickly uh, do some pretty significant damage. It cuts down into the, into the earthen dam and, and, and creates huge ruts and, uh, which can lead to just a complete dam failure. Yeah, which which is an ordeal, which can be no, a serious I mean, ordeal. Yeah, I mean, once once you get to a, a certain point and that water is pouring through uh, the dam, you know, it just it doesn't take long because uh, the dam is just not designed to withstand that. And, you know, it cuts deep enough and it just eventually blows out the whole dam. You see these dams that have big 30, 40, 50 foot swaths cut in them. Well, it, 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 and it can happen very yes. quickly. Water's a powerful thing. You know, when you, you see these flash floods, pictures and videos on TV, what water does in a very short period of time when it comes with volume and velocity, that's what happens in a, in, when a dam blows out. 
Yeah. Hey, and then you got the other situation. Like I, I was talking to you about a uh, about a property that I've got listed right now here in Shelby County, where the the pipe has actually rusted down low uh, at the bottom, you know, toward the bottom of the pond, and it rusted in in two. And of course, all that water runs out the runs out the backside of the dam, and now you're you're sitting there with a uh, you've lost two thirds of your water in your lake because your pipes rusted. That's right, and a lot of times that that won't lead to a to a blowout. Right, it just leads to an empty an empty pond. Empty lake, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's but you know, so it's not quite as acute, but it's just as devastating. And in order to fix it, you got to go in and and cut down to that pipe, which basically means cutting down through the core of the dam rip all that stuff out and replace it you know if you let it get to that point um there are some remedies if you notice that happening early enough before it causes severe damage and erosion you know while is at a tunnel underneath the dam basically in the earth there are some remedies that can uh prevent you having to completely rip out the dam and start over so we we try to be alert for for that sort of thing if you have a lake that's that's leaking and certainly if you can identify the spot it's you know if it's coming from that the back side and you see water coming out of that pipe there's that problem is not going to go away on its own i'll say no that. it's only going to get worse it's going to yeah. get worse that's right you better get that's on that right. now yeah that's right no, absolutely. absolutely well good stuff man a good topic and and one that people that have ponds owners of ponds i mean it's it's some great information for them and you do you guys do an amazing job at southeastern pond management with being able to come in and take care of of these problems and and keep problems from occurring in the first place is even more like it but hey and i'm looking forward to our next one i think next month uh when we will be recording again and i think kind of finishing this series up uh that we're on and i think we'll be talking about some stocking some rainbow trout maybe even a little tilapia oh um, yeah yeah rainbow trout are, are a lot of fun and it's something over the last uh six eight ten years in particular we've done more and more of our customers seem to get a real kick out of it of course uh, trout are cold water fish and so they don't they don't tolerate the uh the, the warm weather months you know they they won't survive in most of our waters in the in the deep south uh much past you know april or certainly may uh but they thrive when the water temperature is down in the 60s or below and so uh what we started doing years ago brian is we we have access to really high quality fishable size you know adult size rainbow trout you know we can get them you know a pound or two up to several pounds and so we stock them into these lakes in the fall uh you know usually sometime around uh thanksgiving and and you've got november december january february march april you know so you got five six months of fantastic trout fishing uh, you know they're great to eat uh they're fun to catch in the wintertime uh unlike bass and brim and the fish that we're more accustomed to catching in in ponds in the deep south these trouts thrive in the winter they're easier to catch when the water's cool so uh they're a whole lot of fun they're great to eat and uh 
it's important if you want to do it to get them stocked in there early because they only last so long. So be sure and get the most out of them. Get on the list. Yeah, we'll start. Yeah. We we try to get we try to make our first stockings uh, prior to Thanksgiving because so many folks spend time at their properties around the holidays. It gives you something to fish for for th- around Thanksgiving. So around the uh, second week in November, second, third week in November, we stock a lot of trout, but we, we continue to do it really all the way through December. Wow. That's awesome, man. That'd be a lot of fun right there. Uh, for sure. They are, they are, they're, they're, gra- and they're great to eat. They great are, they're really good to eat, man. No they, doubt about it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's something we've, we've had a lot of fun with in the last few years. Yeah, well, guys, y'all listeners, if you're interested in that, like Norman said, it needs you know that's something you need to get on in November. So I know we will be doing a show on that next month, but don't wait uh, to hear it again on the show. Uh, you probably need to go ahead and get on the list fairly soon uh, on Norman's list so that they can get you get you stocked up with some trout, uh, so you can enjoy that you and your family through the winter. Norman, man, thank you. Always a pleasure having you on, brother. Hey, I enjoy it, Brian. Same here. All right, man. Take care and uh, enjoy Auburn while you're down there, and we'll see you soon. I'm I'm pulling through Tumor's Corner as we speak. Love it. Love it. All right, buddy. Take care, man. (laughs) All right. You too. All right, bye. All right, guys. Let's take a few minutes and hear from some more of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The days of heading out and blindly looking for good fishing areas are pretty much over. Don't waste time and money on fuel searching for fish. You need the most recent, highest resolution images to not only know where to go, but where not to go. The knowledge provided by today's technology is critical when planning an offshore fishing trip. Make the choice that the professional captains all over the Gulf of Mexico make and choose Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The easy-to-use interface and excellent customer service will have you on the fish every time you go. Check it out at Hilton'sOffshore.com. And by Baker's Metalworks in Dixie Supply. Baker Metalworks and Dixie Supply offer numerous items to help you get your project done right the first time. They carry a variety of different panel profiles in your choice of colors and gauges with all the matching trim and accessories. They also offer a full line of hardware items and post-frame building designs. Their friendly and knowledgeable sales representatives are always willing to help answer any questions or concerns you may have. Contact them with any questions or get a free estimate today. Baker's Metalworks and DC Supply, your metal roofing headquarters. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Man, what a, another good segment with Norman, right? I mean, he, he, you know, Southeastern Pond Management does an incredible job, and I've really enjoyed the series that we're doing with Norman. You know, I know we all want to hear about fishing. We want to hear about where they're biting, what they're biting, uh, and that's the main gist of the podcast but i i do think this is a very important uh thing because we have a lot of listeners that are landowners a lot of people that have you know ponds and may not know management strategies uh or who to contact so i think it's a great series that we're doing with him i'm enjoying it i know norman's enjoying it and hey look let me let me take this opportunity to say if you're looking for land if you want a pond, if you want a lake, if you want land to hunt, fish, whatever, call me. I'm an agent with National Land, not only a podcast host, 
but I also sell land for National Land Realty. And man, I would be glad to help any of you guys if you're thinking about purchasing land, you're thinking about selling land. I don't talk about that on here on the show a lot because, uh, man, it's a fishing, it's a fishing podcast and, and I kind of keep that separate. But I do want all you listeners to know that, man, please reach out to me if you've got some property to sell or if you're interested in buying. Well, hey, let's get to the second segment and I'm going to start this segment, second segment off by saying I may be one of the worst neighbors in Shelby County or, or in Alabama. Our next guest, actually, we meet last night uh, for the first time uh, at a middle school meet the teacher deal. Our daughters are the same age. And my man Shane lives right across the street from me. I'm like, I'm like looking off the front porch of my house. But hey, welcome to the show, Shane Wright. What's going on, Shane? Oh, nothing much. How are you, sir? Dude, we got to do better on this neighbor thing, right? Yeah. Hey, it's it's been hectic for everybody. Yeah, it's hectic, and uh, <laughs> everybody gets pulled in different directions. And sometimes, you know, I listen to my dad, you know, who's eighty-two years old and and lives in North Louisiana in a small town, and it and it just, I guess, it just kind of warms my heart when I talk to him and hear him. I mean, he's always going and visiting people, visiting neighbors. People yeah. are coming and seeing him, and that's something that our generation honestly is losing Um, you're right and and it's sad that that that's the case but i I think there's more distractions maybe now than it was in their time but they made it a and my dad still does uh it's something that he is very intentional about and uh and we all should do a better job of that yeah i agree they kind of make it a a priority that's right that's right yeah and I make it a priority to get home in the afternoon and kick my feet up on the couch and watch Netflix. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey, we're all there. We're there, right? But uh, yes, man, sir. I appreciate you you getting on the show today. And 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 man, it was uh, I'm looking forward to getting in the boat and going fishing with you. But I really, after talking with you last night, and I know our we were supposed to be paying attention to what the teachers were saying, and me and you kind of in the corner over there talking about fishing exactly right but man yeah, you yeah. started talking about a way to crappie fish here that uh i ha- we have not had anybody else on the show talking about and and not only the technique and the way you're catching these fish but i've really been trying to find somebody on the kusa system uh a crappie fisherman that was successful and could get on and and talk about crappie fishing on the kusa river so Man, I'm uh, I'm fired up about you getting on, brother. Yes, sir. I appreciate you having me. So. Yeah, man. Well, now you you used to be a bass guy and a tournament fisher, and uh, and you was telling me last night you you had a buddy introduce you to this, and you kind of kind of went cold turkey on the other and wide open on. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I used to bass fish, and I got a buddy named Furman Garrett, and he kind of introduced me to to dock shooting, and you know. It, it's kind of like when you kill that first deer, once once you do it, you're hooked. Yeah. Well, and you said last night, the first thing you said when you was talking about, to me last night, talking about the crappie fishing, and you said you were shooting docks. 
And I was just kind of probably had a little bit of a dumb look on my face because I had no idea what you were talking about at first. And then it kind of started, okay, you're talking about fishing docks. But then yep. when you're saying the term shooting docks, there's a little more to it than just fishing docks. Yeah, there there absolutely is. It's, if you if you think about a bow, it, it's kind of the same concept. You're, you're loading the rod up using a five and a half or six foot, usually a medium light action. And you're holding the jig between your fingers and you're loading that rod to shoot that jig as far back under that dock as you can. So you're basically bending the rod tip and pulling the, the jig. You're holding the jig and you're pulling it back, putting a bow into your rod, just like a bow and arrow slingshot and slingshotting it under the dock. That's exactly right. All right. Here's the question I got. And I've been thinking about this all day. You're using a spinning reel, correct? Yes, sir. So I'm assuming you're flipping the bail and then you're holding the line against the rod with your other finger. Is that correct? Absolutely. Getting your hand-eye coordination just to release them at the same time. That's what I was thinking. You, you Do you release the same time or you have to? release the jig like just literally a fraction of the second before you release the other yeah i just try to do it at the same time that's very cool yeah and, and, and it's like it takes practice you know i'd recommend somebody doing it that you that you get in your basement and or outside and sit in a chair and and just practice you know shooting inside a five gallon bucket or or, you know, under a piece of wood and, and just keep doing that till you get the hang of it. Yeah. And, and I was telling my daddy, uh, I was talking to him, he's a big crappie fisherman. I was talking to him about it earlier today. And, uh, so if anybody's riding through North Louisiana in the morning and happens to see an old man out in the front yard with a fishing pole, he's, I guarantee you, he's going to be in the front yard practicing that in the morning because it intrigued him. Yeah, because that's the last thing you want to do is, is you know, go out there without practicing, and and next thing you know, you're you're hooking Mama's outdoor patio furniture on her on her lake and having to get out on her dock and and unhook it. That's that's not good. No, that's not good. <laughs> so, what makes this technique so deadly is that you're you're getting the lure well up under the dock right yes where if you're if you're fishing with you know a jigger pole a crappie pole and you're getting up close to the dock and just fishing the outside edge of it one i would think that you're spooking a lot you're spooking the fish because you're having to get close to it absolutely and two you're just hitting the fish on the outside what you're wanting to do is get this jig as far back under there as you can get it I want to get to those fish that hadn't been pressured. Boom. Those those bigger crappie and those larger schools of crappie, they're going to get on the darkest place under that dock. And and that's where they feel safe at. That's one thing I've learned through doing this show and talking to some other incredible crappie fishermen is crappie hate sunlight. They hate the sun. Absolutely. And they will go crawl by, if, like you said, in a dark area or deeper water or tight to cover, whatever they can do to find shade. Yep, absolutely. 
So when you're looking, when you're, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of lakes up and down the Coosa that have lots of docks, lots of boathouses. Are, are, is there anything particular that you're looking for and to, to say, okay, I'm going to fish that one. Or, uh, I mean, you look, do you like one that is empty or would you rather see one with a big pontoon boat sitting under it? I kind of like one that has a boat in it. Of course, that's not always the case. I like a bigger dock that you see, especially on Logan Martin, you see docks that are way off the water that, you know, those will hold some fish occasionally, but you want to find those big docks that are low to the water that have the most shade. And, and that's where you'll find them. And that's where they'll be. So, that's I mean, cool. how far above the water are we talking before you can, I mean, are you, you talking? 10 inches, six inches, a foot. I mean, what? I'm, I'm going to tell you, you want to fish these docks that it's hard for other people to fish. So I'd say that six to 10 inch range is the magic number. Okay. That That's where you're going to find your larger schools of crappie. Because the, like I said, the shade level is just more when it's lower to the water. Sure. It makes total sense. Makes Absolutely. total sense. And so when you're slingshotting or shooting this dock, mm-hmm. how how far from the dock do you try to get? I mean, are you trying to stay a certain how far can you shoot this thing? You can shoot it a whole lot further than you think you could. I want to shoot that jig as far as I can. Let's say a dock's in ten foot of water. You know, I, I want to shoot that dock all the way back to where it's a foot, foot and a half deep. So oh, wow. The further you can get it back, you know, the better opportunity you got, it, you know, just to work it back out and find where the crappie are holding on that dock. I got you. Now, you're shooting it back there, and then you're, you're reeling that jig back in. Yep. Most of these docks have cross beams, all that stuff yep. through there. I mean, is it, how do you keep from getting hung up all the time on the cross beams, running it back in? First thing I do when I come to a dock is, is I check that dock for cross beams. I, I find an area that I can shoot that, that, you know, has big poles under it that I can shoot that jig far back in and not have to worry about it. So that's just another part of it is, is choosing the right angle. Right. Uh, if there's an angle that you, you know, you can't shoot that jig all the way back without going over a cross beam, you know, you just use a weedless jig and Uh and you're going to lose, you know, all of us as crappie fishermen, you know, if you're not getting, Hung up and broke off several times. You're not crappie fishing. Yeah, that's just part of it. It is. Thank goodness they don't cost uh fourteen dollars <laughs> like this uh like exactly. some of these chatterbaits do, right? Oh yeah, we'd and be some in of trouble. these swim baits. Absolutely, yeah. we'd be in trouble. We'd be in a bind. Uh, man, do. that is that's just really cool, and and the the way you're doing that, and when you're so your retrieve on that, or is it just kind of a slow roll in, or are you kind of pulling and letting it die? Uh, kind of what kind of retrieve are you using? 
Well, you know, the, the general rule of thumb is, is when you shoot that jig back, you want to let that jig go down to the bottom. Okay. And you let that jig go to the bottom, usually just a slow retrieve back. And, you know, when you, when you figure out where the crappie are, you know, you can get aggressive. Like if you're coming by a big post on a wood pier and you know that there's crappie, let's say, holding under the the fourth post on the left, you know, in the back of it. So when you come by that pier, you can give that jig just just a little shake and shake the rod tip. And a lot of times they'll thump it when you do that. Just give it a little bit of action. That's right. Just And, you know, if you pull up on a dock that they're really loaded on there, it, it's just like, you know, let's say if you're bass fishing, when they, when they hit the jig on the fall, I mean, a lot of times your line's just going to jump. Yep. You're going a little twitch. Well, when you got that twitch, you, you set the hook and they're there. Speaking of line, I mean, how critical with it when you're doing what you're doing with this, I mean, is it critical to have the right line diameter? I mean, you're using like a floral carbon. Yeah. You can get away with it. Sometimes I try to use a high vis, you know, vicious makes a good high vis, uh, I've used Mr. Crappie, Gamma, four to six pound test. But when though you go to lakes where the water's real clear and you, you hadn't had a rain in a week or two, I mean, you know, you may have to go to fluorocarbon. It's it's a whole lot harder to see, you know, for you to, to see the bite. But, you know, the crappie's right. got that high-vis line sometimes in the clear water. It It, it does spook them. Yeah, just depending on how clear it is. Um, exactly. You know, my dad was asking me a question, and, and I told him I'd ask you today, but could you use the same theory with a 10-foot crappie pole and 10-foot of line to where you would, you know, grab the bottom and just and use your crappie pole and shoot it back under there? Or, and I was thinking through that, the bad part of it is you can only, I mean, you've only got 10 foot of line, right? So you're yeah. not going to shoot it too terribly far. Yeah, exactly. And another problem you're going to have with a long rod is a lot of these places, you know, it's, it's tight getting in there. Like it only, there might only be a corner exposed. Let's say if you're fishing a boathouse and you may only have a little section that you can shoot there. And if you've got that long rod, there's there's no way to get that line back there because your rod's going to hit. You, you know, it's going to hit the pier. Oh you'll, yeah, you'll end up breaking a rod. Yeah, especially if you if you're if you're coming in close to that dock, trying to shoot exactly. it way back up in there, right? Yeah, and a lot of times, you know, that's what you have to do. I mean, that you know, when sense. I pull when I pull up to a dock, you know, the first thing I want to do is. You know, crappie are real sensitive to, to prop wash. So you you want to have your trolling motor as low as you can and still fish it effectively. So I'll kind of hit the outside for the, you know, the first few shots that I shoot under there. But then I just work my way in. And, you know, that way, if, if there's some of those, you know, aggressive fish on the outside edges, I'll catch them and then just work my way in to the darker, shadiest places of the dock. When you're bending that rod down 
And when you're pulling that line back, I'm assuming you're bending the rod toward the water because when you're releasing it, I'm trying to envision this. You're wanting that jig to stay as low to the water as it can for as long as it can. So you want to create that angle with the tip of that rod to, to keep it really low, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because because some of the things you'll see when you first start doing this is you've got to learn where to hold that jig according to your rod. A, a good rule of thumb is the last eye. So the eye closest to the reel, that's where you want to stop that jig at. And, you know, that's when you pull it back. Another important thing is your rod has to be close like you said, you know, the closer to the water you can keep it because you're going to want to raise up. It's just natural when you let that line go, you want to raise the rod up. Well, when you do that, that jig's going to hit the side of the pier. It's going to go on top of it. So like you said, the lower you can keep it and you get consistency doing that, the better you are. I'm going to have to practice this. I mean, I bet you if I can learn to do this out of my kayak, especially a silent is you can come up to a dock in a kayak. Dude, it can be damn. I could wear them out. You absolutely will. There's no doubt about it. Dude, I can't wait to go. Your time is there any specific jig you're using? I know we talked about some things last night. I know you're tying a lot of your own jigs, but is there is there a particular thing you're looking for on 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 these jigs? I like uh early in the year when the fish are a little deeper, I'll go to a sixteenth ounce. But, you know, when the water starts warming up a little bit, a 32nd or a 24th is a, is a good one to go with. And you want to imitate the shad colors. You know, Bob, Bobby Garland makes some good baits. And, you know, the monkey milk and the, the blue ice, there's several good shad imitating colors that they make that work really well. Good deal, man. But can you catch fish like this all year round? You know... I'm sure you could. It, it starts slowing down with me in June. So I normally start when the water starts cooling. I normally start about mid-October. And I catch fish all the way through, you know, the first week of June. Oh, man. That's plenty. That's plenty. of That's a freezer full. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I try to keep everybody, you know, you got family members. I try to keep everybody you know, pretty much stocked and crappie. That's awesome. Shane, I can't wait to go with you, brother. Hey, I'm excited. Like I said, I'm, I'm ready to go. And when it starts cooling down, we'll get together and, and go out there and, uh, show you what it's all about. Absolutely, man. I'm, I gotta get, I gotta, I gotta walk down the hill and, uh, and see some of your setup there. So I'll know what to go get me. Cause I, I can tell you right now, I, I'm going to go get, Medium light action rods, about six, six and a half foot. Yeah, I go anywhere. You know, you B and M, uh, they make a good rod. It's called a dock shooter. Uh, you can get it in a five and a half to a six and a half foot uh, medium light. Also, there's a, a rod I use called Cashin. Uh, Cashin rods out of North Carolina. They make a good crappie rod. I can't wait, man. Yeah, they must be on the Cash River up there, where they must be out of. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, good I just started. I, yeah, I just started using theirs last year, uh, and, and I, I bought a couple of them, and uh, I was real pleased with them. But uh, 
B&M makes a good crappie dock shooting rod. Yeah, and then you're just using a spinning rod. Just, I mean, is there any particular one to shoot that works better or just as long as it's a good crappie, low-profile spinning rod? You know, it's it's just like you you know when you when you're bass fishing, you want that reel that's that's got the most ball bearings and it's got the smoothest drag. Well, you know, it's the same way with crappie fishing. I I preferably like a, a Fluger President. I use a twenty series, so it's not the smallest one, but it's right in between, and it it works real well. Well, I'm gonna come down there, see what you got, and I'm gonna get the exact same thing. Cause you already, you've already been through all the trial and error. You know what works, right? So, uh, I'm going to follow your lead. Hey, come on. Anytime you're going to have a fish cooking. Yeah. We're going to go get them. I see it, man. Hey, Shane, thank you, man. I greatly appreciate you being on here tonight and, uh, look forward to seeing you a lot more, buddy. Hey, me too. And I appreciate you having me on anytime. All right, man. We'll talk to you again soon. I'm sure. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. All right, guys, let's take a few minutes and hear from some more of this week's sponsors. All right, guys, let's take a few moments and hear from some of this week's sponsors. North Alabama is the place to go for your next fishing expedition. North Alabama is home to eight picturesque lakes. Pickwick, Wilson, Wheeler, Weiss, Smith, Neely Henry, Lake Gunnersville, and Bear Creek Lakes. Each lake is well-stocked with a variety of fish, and in North Alabama, fishing is great year-round. For more information, visit www.northalabama.org and click on plan to download a North Alabama fishing guide. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Hey, what a cool segment that was, right? I mean, shooting docks. I I, I didn't know. I didn't know about this. Uh, Glad I went to the meet the teacher. That's a lesson to all you dads. Go to the meet the teacher deal with your kids. Uh, you never know what you're going to learn about fishing or who you're going to meet. You might even meet your next door neighbor that you hadn't met in a year since they lived there. Shame on me, but Hey, glad, uh, glad I got to hook up with Shane. I'm super fired up, uh, about trying this and, and getting in the boat and going with him and see how, how he does it, but awesome show. And, uh, love having these new things on here. Guys it's cooling off. Get out there. Of course it's raining right now i get it but uh but man it's a great time of year fall is approaching get out enjoy the great outdoors enjoy the lakes that we've got in alabama we are incredibly incredibly blessed and uh hey take it go meet your neighbors let's get out start meeting some neighbors again uh it'd make my dad's generation proud if we did that all right guys y'all have a good week look forward to talking to y'all again soon That is going to be a wrap for today's podcast. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, we would love for you to take just a few minutes and subscribe, rate, and leave us a review wherever you listen. If you'd like us to email you the show, we'll do it each and every week. All you got to do is text the word fishing to 314-665-1767. We'll email it to you each and every week. Stay safe out there, guys. Talk to y'all next week. This week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report was brought to you by Killer Dock. Check out the best fish cleaning stations known to mankind at KillerDock.com. Also brought to you by MB Ranch King Hunting Blinds and Feeders are built to last right here in the USA. We also offer high-quality, easy-to-use corn and protein feeders that can be filled with both feet on the ground. Call Kevin today 
For more information or get a quote at 205-807-2937. MB Ranch King, built in the pursuit of perfection. And brought to you by Photonist Defense is proud to offer the PD Pro line of night vision systems. The PD Pro Series is the world's smallest and lightest night vision goggles. These ultralight, ultra-compact night vision systems deliver the cleanest image, best resolution, smallest, most transparent halo, and best overall performance and function of any night vision system available. The PD Pro line consists of the PD Pro M 16mm monocular, the PD Pro B 16mm binocular, and the PD Pro Q panoramic night vision system. Photonist Defense, Masters of Darkness. And brought to you by the Alabama Marine Resources Division reminds all recreational anglers possessing gray trigger fish, greater amberjack, or red snapper that they must report these fish through snapper check before they are landed in Alabama. For more information about snapper check, please visit outdoorsalabama.com. And brought to you by outdooralabama.com that's where i learned the basics of how to hunt and fish learn more at outdooralabama.com go hunt go fish get outdoors and by bucks island bucks island has been in business since 1948 for all of your new and used boat needs as well as motor sales and services and now they have a pro level tackle store Visit them online at bucksislands.com or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And brought to you by boaterslist.com. Do you own your own company that needs to reach boaters, anglers, and marine enthusiasts? Sign up for free today to grow your business on boaterslist.com. And by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors Magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. You can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. 